And it's time now for the 7th Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly. Today on the show, I'm pleased to welcome... Uh, actually, I'm going to let my guest introduce herself. Hi, I'm Brooke Gladstone, co-host of Public Radio's On the Media. Throughout the history of media, there is a recurring theme that the media are controlling our minds. With every new technology, the belief grows stronger that we are in the thrall of external devices. She's right, you know. You hear it all the time. The news media are making us dumb. The media are making us cynical. The media are making us scared and resentful and lazy and shallow. And truthfully, I sometimes think those things myself. But Brooke Gladstone says that's a cop-out. Blaming the whole mess on the media is like blaming our spoons for feeding us all that ice cream. Damn spoons. For the media, get ready for this, are our tools to abuse or use. Well, Brooke Gladstone should know. She's been surveying the mediascape for the last 10 years on the NPR-distributed show On the Media. She co-hosts it with Bob Garfield. And before taking up that position, she was media reporter for NPR. So she's clocked a lot of hours thinking about the media. And now Brooke has a book collecting her thoughts. It's called The Influencing Machine, and it's a picture book, what people these days like to call a graphic novel. But it's not a novel. It's nonfiction. With words by Brooke and illustrations by Josh Neufeld, it provides a sweeping overview of the news business from antiquity to now, even speculating on the future. And it covers topics like freedom of the press, objectivity and bias, even human cognition, our sometimes tenuous grip on reality itself. I spoke to Brooke about those and other subjects. Here's the interview. So, so Brooke, first of all, let me just confess... Uh, for myself, that I still have this journalistic instinct. I haven't killed all of them yet, and that is to be <laughs> to be first or unique or, or somehow special. And knowing, as you and I both do, that you've probably been giving wall-to-wall interviews about this book, uh, uh, could you just pretend to be like a virgin uh, in this Absolutely. conversation? Absolutely. <laughs> it's new each time. You know, I have a zero attention span, so I can't remember what I said the last time. <laughs> uh, I, I heard you say you had ADD once uh, in a in Yeah, a that was to Jesse Thorne. <laughs> and you regret that to this day, yeah? Well, I don't love it because now it's in my Wikipedia page and, you know, but so it goes. You know, you live in public, that's what you get. Um, well, we'll we'll leave that subject behind and get into the book, <laughs> but but um, we'll stay personal here because the book felt to me uh, like a kind of very personal essay, a personal manifesto, a summing up of all these years of being a mediated person. Um, you've sort of collected all your thoughts. Is that right? That is exactly right. I think you know because I have a selling platform, I have a show. I'd had a number of publishers and editors and agents coming through there. Uh, wanting to take me out and see if I wanted to write a book, you know, just because I had a place where they thought I would be able to sell it. Of course, I really can't sell it on my show, but they didn't know that. But in <laughs> any case, I didn't want to because I got tons and tons of media books all the time. They tended to fall into a couple of categories. Either they said that we were facing the collapse of civilization or else they were saying that we're on the verge of you know, a cyber utopia. And I just felt, you know, whenever I went out in public, people were feeling a sense of rising panic. And it suddenly occurred to me that after a couple of decades of covering this stuff, that I wasn't panicked in the slightest, even though I saw all sorts of crazy things happening, and uh, not all of them good. Nevertheless, I felt such a sense of excitement. And I went on this writing spree where I 
learn stuff that I didn't know. I mean, there's tons of things in that book that I didn't find out until I, until I started writing the book. And I realized that I was right. At least I was right for me. There's no reason to panic. You simply have to engage. Uh, go with the flow? Yeah. But I mean, not just go with the flow, because no, that sounds kind of passive. I mean, you have to be active. You can't just, you know, if you want to participate in what will be just a remarkable cultural transformation, you're going to have to learn the technology. So be not afraid. Be not afraid. But before you get to the conclusion and the reassuring note of be not afraid, plunge ahead into the future with with uh, you know a certain amount of uh, sanguinity, you definitely explore the history, the sometimes sordid, sometimes heroic history of journalism. Sometimes hilarious. Yeah, sometimes hilarious. Sometimes contemptible. <laughs> and you do so in the form of a comic book. I, I know the more dignified term is graphic nonfiction, but come on, it's a it's comic a book. It's a comic book. Yeah. It's a big comic book. It's a big comic book with a, a Brooke Gladstone avatar talking to us um, uh, in a sheer black dress and some dominatrix boots. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Push up the sails. Thanks. <laughs> In uh, in nearly every panel, so there's there's Brooke telling us about you know the prehistory of journalism, um, journalism in America, new media, and then the the, the future. It, it was quite a ride for me, um, and I have to confess that um, here I go confessional again that uh, I was searching as you went through this history uh, for the golden age, and I know you're not supposed to do that, but I couldn't help myself. Mm-hmm. The, the the age when journalism really really was on at the top of its game and doing. All those noble things it's supposed to do. And you found <laughs> no golden age. There wasn't one. Were you there searching was... too, though? <laughs> well, I, I was exploring it. I ha- always had my doubts. You know, as you go through the history of media, and I actually start with the invention of the written word and then go to the year 2045. But if you if you look, you find that in every age there was magnificent journalism, courageous, smart, perceptive, insightful journalism, and the most mendacious, sordid, libelous garbage. And uh, it didn't really seem to matter much what the technology was or what the prevailing journalism ethic was of the day, that, you know, really it boils down to individuals in the end and why they're motivated to do what they do. And then, you know, just like when cultures, uh, nations achieve greatness periodically, individuals, communities. It's because of a, of a confluence of events and a, a clarity of thinking, which we're not generally hardwired to have. Mm. I mean, there's a lot of about cognition in this book and how we are wired to resist information that, that doesn't accord with our view of the world, because there's nothing more unsettling than having to change that view. Uh, we may be able to get into some of those cognitive studies, usually disturbing and yet thrilling at the same time. We seem to love hearing how messed up and stupid and deluded we are as a species true. Uh, these days. Let's go back, though, a bit historically. Uh, what for you are sort of the high points and low points? Uh, let's, let's, let's confine it to the history of American journalism. Mm-hmm. I think of it in terms of a series of firsts, like the first leaking occurred when uh, George Washington's supporters, minions, generals, and himself leaked to reporters uh, in exchange for having them report the story his way. 
you know? So we think that this is a modern phenomenon and that these people should be in jail. And uh, the fact is, is it was present at the creation, that everything we hate about the media was pretty much present at the creation. People were writing anonymously, scurrilous, libelous, venomous things about each other. Hamilton used to do this a fair amount. And, uh, you know, they all use pseudonyms, just like they use online today. Uh, the first horribly negative campaign, it was the second campaign between uh, John Adams and uh, Thomas Jefferson, some pundit editorialist in the pay of Jefferson said that John Adams had a hideous hermaphroditic character. And uh, people in the pay of Adams said that uh, Jefferson was a half-breed who uh, plundered the pensions of widows. So, you know, that sort of thing was going on from the very beginning. I thought it was uh, a high point in American journalism probably occurred uh, during the Battle of Antietam, when a, a guy named George Smiley wrote very feelingly what he saw. It was clear-eyed, it was balanced, and it was a time where nobody, no journalist, pretended to be impartial. But it was a perfect example of how you don't have to be quote-unquote objective to be profoundly informative, fair-minded, compassionate, and, uh, you know, and do your job. Do we know, Brooke, that uh, Smiley was accurate, though? I mean, of course, that was an era Smalley, when Smalley, we... actually. Did I say Smiley? I, I meant Smalley, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I may have gotten it wrong. Do we know mm -hmm. that Smalley was accurate uh, in his reporting, though? I mean, that was, this was the era when, of course, the, the main Civil War photographer, Matthew Brady, was arranging corpses, uh, you know, right. and doing other things that we wouldn't accept today in journalism. And many reports mm -hmm. coming off the so-called battlefields were actually fabricated by people in telegraph offices and things like that. Was he was he sticking to the truth? Well, Smalley had attached himself to uh, General Joe Hooker's staff. And as the battle was taking place, he was taking notes. He was there. I mean, a lot of journalism during that war <laughs> was done by so-called journalism, was done by people far, far, far from the action. But he was there. And, you know, he wrote things like, Pale and bloody faces are everywhere upturned. They are sad and terrible. And, and he wrote about how he thought that, um, uh, General George McClellan, the Northern General, would, uh, would fight on in the morning. And he brought it to a telegraph office. And in fact, uh, the, uh, all the telegraph offices were being controlled by the Union Army. And instead of sending Smalley's report to his newspaper, he sent it, uh, the telegrapher, or whatever you call it, the telegraph guy, said it, sent it directly to the White House because it was the only way Lincoln could get uh, reports from the war. So Lincoln got Smalley's report before his own editors did. And soon after that, uh, McClellan was fired because he didn't fight on, mm. not because of Smalley's reporting per se, but that gave Lincoln a view on, the, on what was going on. And I think by acclamation, most people think that that reporting is among the best war reporting ever done. Uh, and yet I, we read in your book that war usually brings out the worst also in uh, mm -hmm. journalism and in government uh, suppression of journalism. Right. Going all the way back to John Adams, I was um, 
quite chagrined to be reminded that he invoked the or or signed the um, Sedition Act. Yeah, the Alien and Sedition Act, which allowed him to jail anybody who said anything critical of the government during mm-hmm. this small uh, war they were fighting with the French at the time. Uh, and indeed, he did jail people, critics of the government and uh, mm-hmm. and uh, supporters of his rival Jefferson. Um, not uh, something I would have thought Paul Giamatti, excuse me, John Adams would have done. I feel the same way. I mean, I I feel so well disposed towards John Adams. (laughs) But they say that Abigail made him do it. (laughs) Let's blame the Cherchez la Femme. (laughs) And this this continues every time there is a war. There is an attempt Mm -hmm. to spin it by the government and an attempt by journalists, good journalists, Mm -hmm. to circumvent the the filters. But there are a lot of journalists out there who don't try too hard. uh, just to cite one example, um, was it uh, Atomic Bill Lawrence in um, right in the, during a very World War good II? Example. Tell us about him. Well, Atomic Bill was uh, writing for the New York Times at the time. In fact, he got a Pulitzer Prize for his reporting on uh, the the creation and dropping of the bomb on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And yet, he was also in the pay of the Pentagon, and he resolutely denied that there was such a thing as uh, radiation that would cause these mysterious illnesses that were being reported. Uh, There was a lot of censorship on those anyway, and people who uh, broke through the censorship and got there, you know, just seemed to scream against the wind about what was going on. There was such a blackout of news around the bomb. It was, uh, but it was atomic Bill Lawrence who was really carrying most of the water for the Pentagon right in the pages of the New York Times. And uh, denying that after the uh, bombs were dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki that these reports of people suffering from radiation sickness and so on were true. He, he said yeah, they right. were he propaganda. Wrote, yeah, he wrote... He wrote specifically, the Japanese are continuing their propaganda aimed at creating sympathy for themselves. The Japanese described symptoms that did not ring true. Mm-hmm. You know? And then we have a, a shining moment. John Hersey, not that long afterwards, uh, mm-hmm. writing his you know monumental report, Hiroshima, published in The New Yorker, uh, telling the, the true story of how awful it was. It was astonishing. You know, it came out in August 46, uh, before I was born, and uh, the entire issue of The New Yorker was devoted to the one article, and it sold out within hours, and later, the entire text, 31,000 words, was broadcast on the radio in the U.S. and around the world. And one thing that Hersey said was that What kept the world safe from the bomb since 45, and he wrote, has not been deterrence in the sense of fear of specific weapons so much as it's been memory. And it really drives home how vitally important the function of journalism is to make sure we remember. We don't always learn from history, but we're far less likely to if we can't even remember what it was. You know, Brooke, I I thought the... um that old-fashioned sort of oratory that used to issue from people like Edward R. Murrow uh, was long gone. But hearing you just now, you got it, girl. <laughs> wow. I have to tell you, that is the first time and I have no doubt the only time that anyone will liken me to Edward R. Murrow. I am I'm speechless. <laughs> well, you once upon a time were a journalist covering... Uh, the real world uh, before yes. you became a journalist covering Those the days. Yeah, but then you you turned your gaze toward your own profession, right? Um, journalism itself, the media themselves. Uh, when was that that you made that switch? 
When I, I was a reporter, I was reporting from Moscow for NPR from 92 to 95. And prior to that, I was an editor. I was a, the editor of All Things Considered for three years. And before that, I was the editor of uh, Scott Simon's Saturday morning show. And uh, then I became a reporter when I moved to Moscow. And when I came back, that was the job that NPR had. It really wasn't, I can't wait to report on my own profession. In fact, it struck me as a very problematic beat. It still does. For one thing, for somebody who likes to tell stories, and most of us who are in radio do, it's so vicarious. It's about policies and perceptions and, you know, trends and technology. It's it's not... The big challenge of the beat is to talk to people where they live to explain clearly enough what the stakes are so people will give a damn. And uh, and so that's been the struggle since uh, 1995 when I came back from Moscow and NPR made me their media reporter, which I did for six years. And then I uh, went 10 years ago and relaunched on the media so, which had been a a local show and then a, a national show briefly, but they wanted to. It was sort of kind of circling the drain, and they wanted to sort of relaunch it again. But it was, uh, you know, it's over time that I've realized that you can transmute this beat into something that is vitally important because it's where we live. And increasingly, I've lucked out because information is increasingly the currency. Our engagement with uh, information continues to grow. Our ability to talk back to the media, the democratization of media uh, you know, who would have predicted in 1995 that now virtually anybody can walk around with what amounts to a printing press in their back pocket in the form of a smartphone? Well, you just um, revealed that you took up the media beat uh, initially for NPR just because it was available, not because of some great inner drive or uh, you know, mission. I did reveal that. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> I had a I had a completely a different idea that I, I, I was carrying around. And thought maybe you would you would um, corroborate, which is that as a journalist, you found something wanting in the kind of unexamined conventional reporting that is out there, and that you thought, well, it'd be really interesting to focus on the medium itself and all of the things reporters do, and that channels of communication cause them to do. It sounds like you should come and work for me. <laughs> well, see, I, I mean, I, I would never put myself uh, on the same level as you as a journalist or anything. Um, but, Why you know, in, in my own small <laughs> way, my own small way, uh, when I did report, when I do occasionally, and it's not that often, I find myself straining against the conventions of the form. And these are some things that you outline uh, very nicely in the book as kinds of bias, particularly the narrative bias. I mean, people like to talk about political bias, but there's there are these other structural biases in journalism. Yeah, they're they're baked into the business. Exactly. Commercial bias, uh, visual bias, if you happen to be in a visual medium. Um, you can list the others. Yeah, that, well, there's, uh, there's access bias, the deals you cut with your sources. If you work in Washington or someplace where there's a lot of powerful people and you become prey to a kind of Stockholm syndrome. And then, of course, there is fairness bias. One that uh, most mainstream media outlets are prey to because they've had three decades, four decades, ever since Nixon, uh, being accused of being uh, liberal or left-leaning. And uh, they 
basically balance the scales of their reports by taking two arguments that uh, may or may not be equal and giving them parsing out exactly equal time, you know, equal space, equal voices. It doesn't matter if one argument doesn't hold water at all. This insulates them from the charge of bias, but it doesn't serve their audience. And uh, fairness bias is, is one that's really pernicious because it's, uh, it's carried out in the name of objectivity. Yeah, yeah. It, they, they're all bad in their own way, but the one that really stuck in my craw and does whenever I try to do a, a conventional story is the narrative bias. That is, that everything has to be a damn story. In fact, that's the word for what we do. We, we create or write or produce stories. And that means they have to have a certain shape, even if reality doesn't have that shape, a beginning, a middle, and an end, a conclusion, a kind of nice rounded feel. Um, so much out there doesn't, doesn't really, you know, conform to that. But, you know, there's, you know, for people who consume the media, there's a need to put this stuff in some kind of context. I mean, many people say when they're, you know, viewing, when they're reading stories over the course of decades about the Mideast, Mideast peace process, it's like watching as the world turns. You could, you could drop the paper for three years, come back, and virtually see the same story again. If we just report the world in increments, that doesn't really serve anybody either. It just creates a sense of weariness, a sense of history is one damn thing after another. On the other hand, as I say in the book, the narrative bias, the need to create a story with a beginning, middle, and end, when so many stories are really about process, especially science stories, stories about health, mm -hmm. which is uh, why so many news consumers find themselves getting battered with coffee is good for you, coffee is bad for you, wine is good for you, wine is bad for you, chocolate is good for you, chocolate is bad for you, fat will make you fat, fat will make you thin, that, that whole deal is, uh, you know, it just creates confusion. I mean, how do you battle against confusion without oversimplifying reality? And then there's the further question, which I spend a lot of time in the book. I'm afraid to even mention that. So people will now stay away from it in droves. But, you know, what is reality? You know, exactly how much that you take in through your senses, do you not uh, manipulate unconsciously before you report it? See, it's my sense that this level of circumspection uh, and epistemology is not healthy for a regular beat reporter. <laughs> <laughs> and and it, it's the kind of thing that, um, that leads one to create a show, again, me imagining a scenario here, like on the media where you and Bob Garfield and your colleagues, uh, you know, the, the show has a feeling of inquiry. It has a feeling of questions being honestly asked and uh, a lot of wonderment and not necessarily, you know, story-like conclusions being drawn at the end of every That's show. That's true. The, the thing, the way that we deal with it is to make the stakes as clear as we can. You know, here's why we're choosing to talk about this, and here's why you should care. And if it isn't explicitly stated, then it's, it's right there below the surface. Uh, and so I, I think that that's what works for the show. Um, back to the kind of evolution uh, and ongoing saga of, of journalism in America. These days, of course, and, and your book is partly a response to this, it's much lamented. Um, it's said to be falling apart at the seams. We know traditional news organizations are dying financially, drying up, disappearing. We know that those that are surviving may be doing so by completely selling out to tawdry commercial markets, uh, doing no hard news at all. And then there's the shrill advocacy outlets that 
mostly shout and push one viewpoint or another. The old-fashioned idea of, uh, of the uh, impartial reporter out there searching for the truth seems very much endangered these days, or is it? Right. And is it an old-fashioned idea, or is it, in fact, a new-fashioned idea? Uh, I argue in the book that uh, the kinds of ethics that rule journalism generally are born of a convergence of a new media technology and whatever the prevailing politics of the era is. When we had all these, you know, cheap, steam turbine-driven printing presses that could flood the street with cheap newsprint in the uh, early part of the 1800s, you could drop the price of an edition to a penny. You didn't need political parties owning the papers anymore in order to support them. It was a fractured politics. It was a cheap and easy technology, and it created fractured media, newspapers with all sorts of points of view, but not owned by parties. Uh, When we get to uh, the mid-century, the mid-20th century, what you have is a shiny new technology that is unbelievably expensive, that requires audiences of unprecedented size. And at the same time, you have a politics that demands, absolutely requires political conformity. They both, both the technology and the politics marginalized outsiders created a center to whom, to which all should adhere so what do you get in the uh, in the journalism realm you get objectivity we don't advocate because they've bought on to a central agenda and it was a fairly narrow focus people on the extremes were not heard and even culturally you didn't see people who were black or Jews or immigrants or anybody with an accent or anybody with a, a vowel at the end of their name. It was all middle America, suburban, you know, middle class values and brilliant reporting. This was the era of Edward R. Murrow. This was brilliant reporting, but it was narrow and exclusionary reporting. You could have somebody like Walter Cronkite be voted in the 70s, according to some poll, the most trusted man in America, and you could have him ending every newscast with the rock-solid assertion, as he always did, that's the way it is. And it it would be risible today because we know that's not the way it is. The world is simply not that simple. It simplified the world for us. I think this is a good time, Brooke, for you to tell the donut story. (laughs) You know, it's amazing. I learned the donut story when I was researching this book, and I put it on the air, and many people are interested in the donut story, and I think it's because it's such a clear presentation of the conundrum faced by journalism. Historian David Hallen divided the world that the journalists must cover into three spheres, and now you have to picture that I'm holding a donut. The hole inside the donut, that's the empty area there, is the sphere of consensus. That's the place where everything we all agree on is, you know, voting is good, motherhood is good, you know, apple pie is good. These are unquestionable values and unchallengeable truths. Then there's the donut itself, and that's the part that journalists dwell on. This is what Hallen calls the sphere of legitimate controversy. These are the issues that are debatable, undecided. You can probe them, election coverage, uh, domestic policies, war policies, anything that is 
arguable. And usually what gets pushed onto that donut, that sphere of legitimate controversy, is placed there by people in authority. It's not stuff necessarily that uh, people way out on the margins are going to say. That doesn't land there. I mean, if we are going to be discussing legalizing pot, it's because people in authority have said, uh, you know, it's time for us to start talking about legalizing pot. It isn't because, you know, all the potheads, you know, who have been saying it for the last 30 years are saying it. So authority has a lot to do with what goes on the sphere of legitimate controversy. And then there's the area around the donut, the empty space. That is the sphere of deviance. That's the place for people and opinions that, quote, the mainstream of, of the society reject as unworthy of being heard. You know, Holocaust deniers are in the sphere of deviance. Uh, you know, in some groups, in, in, among some cultures, in our fractured culture, you know, Noam Chomsky is in the sphere of deviance. Many of the things Glenn Beck says. The trouble is, is that authority used to control that, and now authority doesn't anymore. So all sorts of things that would normally be in the sphere of deviance go onto the donut. And, uh, you know, that might not be a bad thing. In the meantime, Mainstream reporters are trying to figure out what it is they should be covering in a fractured uh, media climate and a fractured political climate. Sure, sure. So the donut is always changing. So at one time in history, well, if we had lived in World War II, Nazi Germany, you know, anti-Semitism would have been right in the middle of the, the donut, accepted shared value, right? Uh, in, not even in controversial. Germany. Yeah, in Germany. Mm -hmm. uh, not even controversial. On the other hand, um, even talking about homosexuals like 50 years ago as, as belonging to society in some uh, positive way was, was way outside the donut. And now it's mm -hmm. moved closer to the interior of the donut. So the donut's always changing. Um, if there were no donut, if there were no division of the world into these three areas, the ones you can argue about, the ones you all accept and don't question, and the ones you don't even talk about, um, journalism would be pretty strange, wouldn't it? And... So it is, because I honestly think that that, uh, that that donut is getting shot to a big pile of crumbs from the, uh, from, from the democratization of media. You We're know, all eating different you have donuts. To have yeah. a, you have to have a professional class that is in constant conversation with the power class in order to maintain, create and maintain a donut like that. The, the further the... Uh, the levers of media, the more that they are democratized and the more they go into the hands of just regular people and non-professional class, uh, the, the less clear the boundaries of that donut. You know, it, when we look at real objectivity, I think that, you know, again, it's obviously something that one can only hold up and maybe aspire to uh, on one's own terms. But if we were to have the real thing, it might sound a little like this. The train, because of its Westinghouse Ecam XCA 448F propulsion system, requires a minimum stopping distance of 625 feet. Before the train came to a complete stop, it ran over three trash bags, a piece of gum, a Snickers wrapper, a man in a glove. That was uh, a spoof by The Onion. That was their quote-unquote autistic reporter, Michael Falk, um, reporting on a, a, uh, an accident in which a train ran over a man, except he's just as interested in the fact that the train ran over a pack <laughs> of gum and a glove. That's real objectivity. Right. I mean, this is why it's such a slippery slope, because if we think if we value humans above a pack of gum or a discarded glove, 
uh, then we've already made a choice, right? And it's, yeah. so it's laughable. It's obvious. But, you know, you make a choice there, then you make another, then you make another, and pretty soon you're a whole individual making judgments about a wealth of experience that you've had covering a particular story. I mean, if you know tons about the uh, environment because you've been covering it for 25 years, then and somebody comes up with some nonsense theory that science doesn't support, do you give that equal time in the pursuit of balance? So I think that in the end, these debates are kind of silly because every individual has to decide for themselves and every individual news consumer has to keep pushing themselves out of their realm of received wisdom, out of their comfort zones, if they want to really honestly know about the world, assuming that they're, you know, to the extent that it's possible to know the world. You know, um, to, to talk about... Uh Striving for impartiality or the appearance of impartiality, of course, this became a big issue, as it periodically does, whenever there's a news-related uh, scandal or um, uproar. And when Juan Williams was fired by NPR for opining on the O'Reilly show that he had uh, misgivings when he was on a plane that was also boarded by people in, quote, traditional Muslim garb, that issue came to the fore again. A lot of people arguing about it. I went back, like a lot of us did, and looked at codes of ethics, like NPR's codes of ethics, and that old-fashioned idea that uh, reporters can have opinions and they can vote, but they're not supposed to express them in public and reveal them in public because the appearance of impartiality is a major goal. And it's um, absurd. You think it's absurd? I do. I think it's absurd. I mean, it's, it is an explicit expression of a kind of hypocrisy, a denial of one's humanity. We don't – those of us who are in journalism are not are – not part of some monastic order of passionless priests. We make decisions. We have convictions. I really think that you can leave them aside when you're doing your work. But to deny that you have them or to hide them, especially in a media environment where really nothing can be hidden for very long, wouldn't it make more sense simply to post a biographical note and people want to know what their reporter what experience their reporters have or what their views are, they could go and click to those. Uh, David Weinberger, who's a bit of a, uh, of a new media visionary, stated some years ago that transparency is the new objectivity, that in an age of links, we don't have to take the reporter's word for it that they're objective and, you know, search around for any sign that they're, that they're not. Nowadays, you can look at original documents. You can, as a reporter, post unedited interviews. You can make the stuff available to the interested news consumer who might be interested in seeing how you collated, edited, filtered, contextualized, and presented a pile of information, which is what reporters do. Well, there, there's still a set of choices, though. Even if you, you choose that uh, approach in theory, 
There are those who say that you, Brooke Gladstone, should maybe publish every uh, political vote and stand you've ever taken in your life, and that we should peruse that, and the shopper can then say, I want to listen to Brooke Gladstone or not, or maybe adjust everything she says according to some formula I derived from her political positions in the past. Mm -hmm. I mean, some people want that kind of transparency. I mean, I would argue with that and say that that's not informative. I mean, what are you supposed to deduce from a vote that someone made in an an election? How is that going to affect their reportage? That's not an easy equation to make. I think that over time, people might come to see those actions that individual reporters take in the course of being a citizen, like voting, as being irrelevant to the work if the work turns out to be trustworthy, if the work turns out to check out, to be fair, that, isn't, uh, that doesn't present issues in a way that prejudices one side against the other, that doesn't omit information that is vital to making a, a judgment about the case. In other words, a fair dealer, a fair dealer can vote any way they want. Well, if I look up your biography on the on the media website, I'm not going to find out every detail of your uh, political leanings, your private um, tastes and proclivities, all the things that I might imagine would affect your reporting, right? I'm not going to. No, you won't. But I don't know. <laughs> Should if, I? If the time came in the future that this was, that, that was required, I would do it. Really? So you would yeah. publish your your everything. I would publish my voting. I would publish my my votes. I mean that stuff's public. I mean that stuff I would make public. Slate's been doing that for years. Who your friends are, what you you know, what kinds of things you like to do and don't like to do. All of those could affect your your take on a particular issue. That's right. And and yeah, no, that's something that like Jeff Jarvis, uh, Buzz Machine. Uh, he he is the blogger at at a popular website called Buzz Machine, and his detailed disclosures make for uh, exhaustive reading. And, uh, you know, I just don't think I'm that interesting. But, you know, if someone wanted to know, well, what do you think, you know, I should be prepared to answer questions. So if I asked you, who'd you vote for in the last presidential election? Barack Obama. Well, you didn't even hesitate. Okay, I just thought maybe I'd detect a moment of discomfort when I asked that question. <laughs> it's not really NPR policy to to present that, but uh, well, I'm an NPR distributed program. Uh, I'm not actually produced by NPR. Let, let, yeah, let's uh, reiterate that, which I'm sure you endlessly have to do. That on the media originates at WNYC in New York. It is distributed by NPR. It is not created by NPR, and it is distinctly not NPR sounding to my ear. Yeah, I hear that a lot. I think it's true. And yet I spent many years in the mothership. <laughs> but uh, part, of the, uh, part of what I wanted to do was, you know, especially if you're working a beat that demands, you know, a high degree of, of integrity and disclosure from your colleagues, the least you can do is disclose yourself, which is why Bob and I, in the course of our interviews, make our own views known. Hopefully, we do not, win, you know, edit to win the argument. But, you know, we make our views known right there. So the listener, you know, can be completely clear where Bob and I at least stand at the beginning of an interview. We sometimes have our minds changed. And we don't tend to use that locution that is used so much in mainstream media and on NPR, which goes something like, so what do you say to the critics who say that you are blah, blah, blah? You know, we'll just say, you know, it strikes me that you're blah, blah, blah. And he'll say, well, you're wrong because of blah, blah, blah. And 
That's good. That's honest. That's direct. You guys have struck a bit of a balance between simply shouting your opinions and shouting down your interviewees, um, something you might see, oh, can I pick on Sean Hannity or someone like that? Uh, you know, sure. <laughs> I mean, you guys don't go that far, uh, but you do reveal, uh, a, a, you know, a little bit of um, opinionation and uh, you get contentious with your interviewees sometimes in a very mild way. So you found your own balance there. I mean, it's clear to me that you have your own code. It may not correspond mm-hmm. to any organization's code of ethics, but you have your own code. We do. We do. We believe in civility. And we believe in serving as the listener's surrogate. So uh, if somebody doesn't answer the question the first time, we might ask it a second, a third, or a fourth time, which, you know, might seem uncivil on NPR, although you hear it a bit more on the BBC. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm curious to know uh, in, in your work, either on the media or before on the media, um, which came about in, what, 2000? That's when you guys started, you and Bob Garfield? Uh, yeah, we launched in uh, January of 2001. Oh, 2001. Um, if you wouldn't mind sharing any moments when you think you failed uh, to meet your highest standards. Mm-hmm. Stories that you now regret. Um, moments, you know, would do over if you could. Well, we were taken in by somebody who, he had some information. I'm trying to remember now. I'd have to go online and, and look up the transcript. But it had to do with the founding fathers being actually against private citizens having guns or something like that. And he had all this documentation. And we went for it. And, you know, where I'm based in New York, and uh, I tend to uh, be suspicious of, of, you know, broad gun ownership. And I think he was playing into my prejudices there. And later, it it turned out that, you know, he had really um, uh, selectively taken from the founding fathers, and he really didn't present a a clear view of what their positions were, and I don't think we inquired enough about it. There have been a number of occasions where we've heard from people who were criticizing, say, like we once heard uh, from a, a critic of the LA Times that was criticizing its coverage in certain disadvantaged areas of the city. And uh, they had done a a big study of the LA Times coverage. And and amazingly, we did not get in touch with the LA Times, or at least not in time to uh, allow them to respond to it. And that was a a big omission. Hmm. Uh, You know, that's something that still really bothers me. Getting facts wrong here and there, if they are, you know, if they aren't fundamental to the story, I mean, we can we can correct them later in the letters section, and you know, there's just so many facts. You know, we try, we always fact check everything, but often guests on the show will make wrong assertions. That sort of thing used to drive me round the bend as a reporter. Mm-hmm. Uh, I I kind of accept it as an occupational hazard. Uh, when so much of your information is actually coming from uh, people who you're talking to and you don't vet every single sentence they utter before they utter it. Absolutely, yeah. In fact, what we're doing right now, this interview form, is a bit of a bastard form as far as, you know, real reporting goes. Mm -hmm. You facilitate and, uh, in some cases, tacitly uh, help out whoever you're interviewing to promote, say, their book, the influencing mm-hmm. machine. Let's say that. <laughs> <laughs> and you don't vet everything they say. There's no way. I, as an interviewer, can fact-check everything my guests say. And there's a collegiality. Uh, there's, a, um, there's an expectation of friendliness in this kind of interview. It's rarely confrontational. It can be. Mm-hmm. But 
mostly it's kind of softball. Mm-hmm. What do you think of the interview show, the talk show? I think that it really depends on who you talk to and what you want to know. I mean, we really focus a lot on interviews because their you know, pieces are, are much more time-consuming. So you want to find somebody who has a really interesting idea, one or two generally. And then you want to do the research. So anybody who's questioned the idea or anybody who, you know, has information that seems to challenge the idea, you can bring out there. So you can really mix it up a bit. Even if if it's collegial and friendly, it's always useful to push back against somebody just so that they you can see how they would defend it. Sometimes somebody just invents something, in which case you just want to know how did that happen? That's the narrative thing. You yeah. know, the the uh transit of you know, of human endeavor, you know, how did you get from here to there? Sometimes somebody had an amazing experience that uh, many would be curious about or identify with or have a kind of an emotional stake in. So it really depends. I don't have any problem with the form uh, unless somebody is making uh, controversial assertions and they aren't being challenged. It's it's when somebody takes a controversial position uh, and I don't feel well enough prepared to counter it that I get really nervous. Mm -hmm. Sometimes in that case, we'll do what we call a three-way, where we'll have two people who don't agree on, or else we'll do a back-to-back where he'll state his view, and then we'll have somebody on to challenge some of those uh, assertions. But uh, that's always different from the the personal experience kind of interview. Speaking of of three-ways, what does your comrade-in-arms, Bob Garfield, think of your book? Uh. I don't know. (laughs) We haven't talked about it. Uh, I think it's because Bob and I uh, have fundamental differences. Maybe they're not fundamental, but they are significant. They have to do with uh, how panicked we should be. And I am something of a science fiction geek, and I love technology, and I love transformations, and I love the idea of brain implants and swimming in a virtual sea of information and all that kind of thing. And I think all that stuff gives Bob the creeps. Mm. So uh, not to speak for him, but since you asked, I think that he would find my view, uh, you know, a little too gee whiz. And he takes a a darker, somewhat more uh, negative perspective on it. Yeah, I think I referred to your attitude toward all the uh, revolutionary changes coming our way faster and faster these days as sanguine. Um, <laughs> what about, though, I mean, the idea that certain kinds of, of journalism uh, that have been essential to an informed public, to revealing, you know, crucial bits of information about governance and other kinds of goings-on uh, require resources. They require money to get those people out to the places where they have to report. They require a paternal institution that will protect them when they're attacked, either physically or legally, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the fact that uh, big papers are better positioned to stand up for their journalists. Those, as, as, you know, journalism becomes fragmented, as the business of journalism totters, do you think we, we do stand to lose something big? I think that the role of the journalist is going to change, that they won't be so much the uh, purveyor of factoids 
as they will be the contextualizer, the filter, the collator, the presenter of information in a more processed way. I think, you know, even the daily newspapers, I mean, a long time ago, the the weekly magazines realized they couldn't break any news. And now the daily newspapers have come to that conclusion. And then there's a lot more sort of interpretive news in the pages or or something that at least gathers together several news, news cycles of information and sort of lands you in a new place. This is what the great newspapers will be doing today. There are still will I really do believe that uh, the New York Times, which is coming back, and the Washington Post and other news sources will still be able to protect their uh, reporters when they are in harm's way. There's also a much greater reliance on citizen journalism to present stories, for instance, from the Arab Spring. We have n- yet to see the full potential of social media to put eyewitnesses every s- in every single corner of the world. Then, of course, the question becomes, can you vet that information? Can you trust that information? And there'll be mechanisms put in place so that you can find somebody who is reliable as a kind of quasi-citizen stringer to bring information to you from those far-off places. In terms of protection, legal protection, when you go undercover, it is out of favor for journalists to go out undercover now anyway. And once news operations became corporate-owned, a lot of that intrepid journalism went away anyway because the uh, corporate owners didn't want to incur the legal fees. You know, it's a world that's always been mixed. It's not as if there was ever a golden time for journalists to do incredible undercover work. If you look at the kind of stuff that the New York Times, for instance, has done in in the last few years, you'll see an amazing amount of in-depth journalism. There's an amazing amount of data crunching going on. The Washington Post did an amazing series on the, uh, you know, global intelligence uh, economy. And that kind of thing was never, we were never capable of handling that much information before the digital world. So when you've got uh, an, an ability to crunch huge amounts of data points. You have people with cell phones in every corner of the world. You have a couple of really strong news organizations. And then you have the collaboration of other smaller news organizations together pooling resources, which we're seeing increasingly. And you have the emergence of blogs that cover the the local news that uh, many of the newspapers and uh, local TV broadcasts have just walked away from. You've got already the emergence of new kinds of media sort of springing in the interstices where the old journalism used to provide that stuff. Well, there's the upbeat message that uh, I knew you'd deliver. Uh, (laughs) With so many more words. I don't know what happened. I've become so wordy. (laughs) Despite resorting to a form, the comic book that allows you to use very few words. Um, It's a very concise form. Yes, uh, it is. I wrote it once, then I cut it in half, then I wrote it again and cut it in half again. Yeah, it's amazing how much you pack in here. I guess pictures really do help. Um, mm-hmm. Brooke, we haven't talked yet about the title of the book, The Influencing Machine, uh, which comes from a, a really, I think, interesting story that you tell at the beginning. Uh, Want to tell it for us? 
Well, there's this uh, character, Victor Tausk, who was a student of Sigmund Freud. And uh, very early, I, I think he originally wrote it in 1919. He, he wrote a paper called On the Origin of the Influencing Machine in Schizophrenia. Based on a patient that he had named Natalia A., he saw something that was very common throughout the psychiatric literature of the time, which is this tendency, this syndrome for schizophrenics to believe that they are being manipulated by an outside force. Generally, it's using whatever the hot new technology of the day mm -hmm. is. And what the force is doing is implanting sexual thoughts, implanting political thoughts, causing one to obsess, causing one to feel ill. In other words, exciting one's inner demons and suppressing one's better angels, I guess is a way to put mm -hmm. it. And that they had no volition. They were being controlled by a machine run by unseen evildoers far away. In her case, it was an electronic device that, that uh, was being operated in uh, Berlin, even though she lived in Vienna. So it traveled all the way there. Uh, more than 100 years earlier, uh, after the French Revolution, there was a man who believed that a machine that was operated through the new science of gases was doing the same thing, driving his countrymen towards war, to be more warlike, to, to cause obsessions to undulate in the mind and so on, and ultimately to, to kill. So, uh, you know, these are both instances of influencing machines. And my central metaphor here, and it's always very, very risky to choose a title ironically, because what my, what my book essentially argues is that the media aren't an influencing machine, but the, the notion of the media in the popular imagination is that it has a dark and nefarious impact on the culture, coarsening it, uh, hobbling our judgment, uh, making us stupid, feeding us crap. And uh, and my argument is that may or may not be the case, but what the media really are is just a mirror of society. And we, as consumers, drive what it produces, and therefore we're, we're the only ones really to blame, ultimately. I, I'm almost afraid to say that because people say, oh, you're just copping out. That just means that, right, you know, right. reporters aren't responsible. But reporters are people, too. They are responsible for their behavior when they are working the media. And if they decide that they won't report on an important story because they want to report on some stupid car chase or some kid who may be in a balloon or something like that, and, and you know, I'm not letting them off the hook – I'm just saying it'd be a lot easier if people didn't tune in to that stuff with such fascination. But maybe we ought to admit to ourselves that we like that stuff. Mm. Did you follow the Balloon Boy story? It was on. <laughs> I mean, I was working, but it was certainly on all of our TVs <laughs> here at, uh, at WNYC. Oh, boy. Um, but, but it is your contention that we are projecting uh, our own base desires and things like that onto the media and then blaming the media perhaps too much for things that we ourselves seem to like, I, seem to consume. I think it's a shared responsibility, and I think that if, uh, if people don't 
make their views known, and if they don't act according to what they say their principles are, you know, if they don't pay for the media that they really respect, if they, you know, indulge in guilty pleasures and and then refuse to admit that they're guilty pleasures, not that there's anything wrong with that, then, you know, you can keep lying to yourself and pretend that everything you don't like is the fault of the media. But, uh, you know, we need to, to look inside and then we need to function in the world uh, in response to what we see there. Why do you think um, public opinion of the media, is, we're talking news media now, um, mm -hmm. has been in decline for, what, four decades or so? Uh, mm -hmm. Trustworthiness, mm -hmm. um, you know, the esteem for the media as a noble profession um, has been um, shrinking um, steadily, I you know, guess, according to some polls. It has been in decline since the uh, since it's been measured, you know, which is not that long of a period of time. I mean, if, if you were to talk about what people thought of the penny presses or uh, lots of different earlier periods in history, World War One, and, you know, I think people would uh, have also had profound problems with their media back then, back when the society was splintered and it wasn't presenting that big middle. You know, I, I think that as... If you look at the temporary blips in uh, in people's opinion of the media, you'll find that when the media expresses emotionally what the majority of people feel, like right after 9-11, even though there was a lot of misreporting in the absolute aftermath of 9-11, the media, the view of the media really spiked because the outrage and the anguish that uh, the people on air expressed very much accorded with what the public felt. And that, my friends, is the end of the interview. Not the real end, because uh, Brooke and I kept talking for a few minutes more, but the infernal machine that was supposed to be recording the conversation decided it had had enough. And I, I suppose the honest thing at this point would be to just leave it at that, right in the middle of things. But um, I have this deeply ingrained narrative bias, maybe you do too, and it says, no, it wants an ending. It demands an ending. So with the help of modern audio technology, I've created one. Well, Brooke, uh, the hour has really flown by, but I just want to say it was a pleasure talking to you and uh, hope you enjoyed it too. It was astonishing. Really? Astonishing? You mean... It was the most mendacious, sordid, libelous garbage. Oh, it was that bad? Nothing good at all? It was clear-eyed. It was balanced, profoundly informative. Sorry, but n now I'm just confused. You should come and work for me. Work for you? Didn't you just say the interview was mendacious garbage? You know, I have a zero attention span, so I can't remember what I said the last time. Well, uh, I'm sure On the Media is a great place to work, but I'm not the type to rush into anything. Sometimes in that case, we'll do what we call a three-way, or else we'll do a back-to-back. -back. Brooke, I I'm sorry, but this is just starting to creep me out. It's very safe in here. Uh, okay, I, I got to go now. Yeah, I hear that a lot. So there's your closure. This has been the 7th Avenue Project. We are on the web at 7thAvenueProject.com. I'm Robert Polly, inviting you to return next week when we will once again strive to be scurrilous, libelous, venomous, horribly negative, sometimes contemptible. We'll see you then. Everybody knows you win. 
especially when I'm the newsman reporting in this town. I'm fresh, brand new. I'm ready to go. But you don't know me. I'm the deadly man with no gun. I'm gonna be writing up everything that goes on in this town. It's almost for free I don't care what you be saying You can lie, you can die It's gonna be printed up there On that big neon sign Got a deadline running fast Like a train on a run You could be on it You might be on it I'm the new newsboy in town my pen is like a razor, searching for corners at all times, for the sake of story, and for the sake of the glory.